assimilation. That's right. You heard right. We are going to be peeling back the layers on this topic with best-selling author, Julissa Arce. Yes, you are here. Bienvenida to the Her Dinero Matters podcast, a mixed language podcast hosted by me, Jen Hemphill, to help you become the reign of your money and love your dinero more. If you are needing some inspiration and encouragement at this very moment, you have come to the right place. Gracias por compartir este tiempo conmigo. Now let's jump in to today's Dose of Money Confidence. Hola, hola. How is it going? I am so pumped about this interview. This is Jen Hempel, your host, by the way. And today is a different type of show as we will be peeling back the layers of assimilation and you will see how it is tied into money with a remarkable Latina. Our special guest, Julissa Arce, has done a ton of research. And when I'm talking about a ton of research, she has been thorough. And today you will hear her perspective on assimilation from not only her experience, but the thorough research she has done. And be prepared today to shift your perspective on assimilation along with learning some history about our community as well. Let me tell you a little bit about Julissa Arce. She is a writer, activist, and social change maker. She is the nationally best-selling author of My Underground American Dream and Someone Like Me. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Time Magazine, CNN, CNBC, Vogue, and you name it, other outlets. Her forthcoming book, which you're going to hear about today specifically, it's called You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation, is a powerful dual polemic and manifesto against the myth that assimilation leads to happiness and belonging for immigrants in America. Instead, she calls for a celebration of our uniqueness, our origins, our heritage, and the beauty of the differences that actually makes us Americans. Lista, let's go meet Julissa. Bienvenida, Julissa. I am so thrilled and honored to have you on the podcast. I have been following you for a while, and I just want to start off with just saying thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for using your voice for our community, and just thank you for just being fearless and just using your voice for good. So I'm excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Yes. So let's start off with going back in time. So if we could go back in time to maybe when you were a little girl, or it could be a teenager, any sort of experience, any sort of memory that you have around money that really has impacted you as to who you are today. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things and I think that the way that the story that I'm about to tell you impacted me then and the way that it impacts me now looking back on it has really changed and it's really shifted. I talk about in both my memoirs, My Underground American Dream and Someone Like Me and in my new book, You Sound Like a White Girl, about the importance of money 
and the importance, sort of what my parents instilled in me about money. And there was this one time, my parents and I used to sell funnel cakes. That's what we did for a living for a while. And it was a New Year's Eve festival and we did really well. It was just my dad and I working. My mom had gone back to Mexico to spend time with our family there. And we had made so much money, like what seemed to me like so much money, right? Especially because it was all in cash. So imagine like $10,000 of mostly like $1 bills and $5 bills. And we just dumped them on the bed because we were counting them. And I could smell like the grease from the funnel cakes, like in the money. And we're making little piles of money. And when we finished counting them, it was $10,000, which was like a fortune to me then. And, you know, my dad jumped in the bed, very uncharacteristic of him because he was like a serious guy. But he jumped on the bed, grabbed the money and started throwing it in the air and saying, somos ricos, somos ricos. So then like I got on the bed with my dad and started jumping on the bed and threw this money up. And and it's like one of the happiest memories with my dad because he was just genuinely so happy that we had this money. And, you know, seeing my parents struggle with money, I knew what it meant to him. And I knew that having this money meant we could pay our rent and we could pay our bills and we could pay whatever debt they had accumulated to buy us like furniture or whatever. And in that moment, I think unconsciously in my mind, this idea started to formulate that I must have a lot of money, right? That I must grow up and have a lot of money because money brings you this kind of happiness and this kind of joy. And look at my dad, who's like this serious grumpy person sometimes. And yet here he is like so happy and money did that, right? Mm. And I did, you know, if for people who have read my book or are not familiar with my books, the story is that I went from some of the headlines of news articles, kind of cheesy, but it was like from selling funnel cakes to selling derivatives on Wall Street. And then I eventually became a vice president at Goldman Sachs and had a very successful career on Wall Street. And with that came a lot of money and a lot of prestige and things that I thought I really wanted and, and things that I thought would really make me happy. And looking back on it, and as I talk about in my new book, you know, I call it the lie of success, the lie that money will give you all of these things and that it will, in the case of the book that I write, I'm talking about assimilation and how we should reject assimilation. And I think one of the things that is enveloped in assimilation is this idea that you've got to make yourself like a contributing member of society, right? And like make money. And like, as soon as you do, as soon as you have a big bank account, you'll like belong in this country. And and what I found is that that's a lie. Now that's not to say that money isn't important because as I always like to say, money doesn't make you happy, but it certainly helps. Exactly. Yep. Wow. I love that story. Now, If you could, let's fast forward now. So you've had this experience of working with your parents, selling funnel cakes, making about $10,000, seeing your dad happy, and you all both celebrating the success of the funnel cakes and you associating that to money brings happiness, which later on you realize that it wasn't necessarily that. Now, you also mentioned your time on Wall Street. So what took you, what led you or your interest in money or Wall Street. So tell us how you got there and why did you take that route? Yeah. And as I said, you know, I think I, some, I mean, a lot of this has changed for me. Like I've had a lot of realizations over the years that give me a lot of 
perspective on the journey that I've traveled. I went to go work on Wall Street because in college, I saw a poster that said you can make $10,000 working on Wall Street for the summer as an intern. And I was like, oh my God, $10,000. You know, last time I'd seen $10,000 was like that funnel cake night. (laughs) And I was like, Wall Street, what is Wall Street? And this is before Google was like a really big thing. So it was like, okay, let me go ask some people, what is Wall Street and how can I get a job there? And really it was like this idea of wanting to have a lot of money because I was also undocumented at the time. And I thought that if I could just have enough money that it wouldn't matter that I was undocumented or that if I had enough money, I could somehow fix my immigration status, which of course is not the case because there isn't a pathway to citizenship for millions of undocumented people, myself included at that time. I am a citizen now, but it was it's a long journey. It's like another story. But that really was it. I was like, oh my God, Wall Street, I need to go work there. I need to go make a lot of money. And I had been admitted to the business school at the University of Texas at Austin, which was one of the top five business schools at the time and still is. And I was a marketing major at the time. And then I switched my major to finance. And this was, I was a sophomore when I saw this poster and I applied and I didn't get the internship But I had another chance because I could still apply the next year when I was a junior. And that's when it really mattered because that's when you could get a full-time job out of this internship, right? And so that year, I did everything I could to learn about Wall Street, about stocks, about investing, about what do people do on Wall Street and try to meet other people who had interned there. And so the next year when I applied, I got this internship at Goldman Sachs and as I say, you know, the rest is history from there. But I think that my skill set really aligned well with Wall Street. There's an article that Max Abelson wrote for Bloomberg Business Week about my story. And he said that Wall Street is a place of unveiled ambition and that I fit perfectly there because like I was very ambitious. And I think that's true. You know, I was very ambitious and I didn't have to hide it when you're at Wall Street, you don't have to hide being ambitious. Like that is expected. That is the culture. And so I sort of fit in really well in terms of like the technical stuff. You know, I was really good with numbers. I've always been really good with numbers since I was little. Math was the way that I survived middle school because I didn't speak English then and kids made fun of me for not speaking English. But in math, I felt smarter than everyone else. I was like, I don't need to speak English to do math. (laughs) And so all of those things, you know, really helped me when I was on Wall Street. The thing I talk about in the book now is how, even though I was really good at the numbers and I was really good at the career stuff and I was really good at the ambition stuff and the go-getter stuff, there was a really big cultural divide between me and my colleagues. And it wasn't just because I am Mexican and I'm Latina. It was really because they came from a completely different socioeconomic background than I did. So I didn't know what it was like to go skiing in Aspen every winter and to vacation in Europe every summer with my parents. And financially, many of them, I wouldn't say everybody, but many of them had never had to struggle with the things that I struggled with financially. And those financial struggles create traumas and they influence a lot about your relationship with money. Yes. You know, and I also, I wasn't just making this money so I could go buy $600 Christian Louis Vuittons, which by the way, I've never bought 
$600 pair of shoes because that's just insane to me. And because as Nelly Galan says, like, don't buy shoes, buy buildings. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I was also taking care of my parents. And so that brought on like a whole nother meaning for me of making this money. But yeah, that's the Wall Street story. I love that. And I'm just also curious, as a Latina on Wall Street, I presume you were a minority. How was that just going up the ladder, if you will, just progressing in your career, the work, everything? How was that as a Latina? Did you find many obstacles? And if you did, how did you overcome them? Yeah, I mean, it's like I mentioned, the career stuff, I feel like I had a really good grasp on it because... I had really good mentors, you know, I had really good advice from people that would tell me, you're the only one who's in charge of your career. You're the one who's in charge of managing your career. Like nobody's going to come to you and be like, let me give you this promotion. Like you have to not only work hard to get that promotion, but like know the right people, make the right connections, have the right conversations. And, you know, and I've never been a shy person. I think that the thing for me that was a struggle it was two things. One, I was undocumented for mm-hmm. some of the time that I worked on Wall Street. And so part of me wanted to just go, right? And sometimes I think about how much further I could have gone if I didn't have this fear that was constantly holding me back. Because the more money I made, the higher up I went on the ladder, the more attention I was bringing to myself and the more exposed I was. So that was one big thing. And then the other is what I mentioned earlier, which was sort of the cultural stuff, the sort of feeling like I couldn't really take part in conversations about skiing in Aspen or vacationing in the summer in the Hamptons because I had never experienced those things. I was still sometimes trying to figure out what fork and spoon to use (laughs) at a fancy dinner. And so those types of things is what really made it difficult. but. I was very fortunate. By the time I was, I think, 27, I was a vice president at one of the most important financial institutions in the world. And, you know, I think that I was fortunate again that I had the right mentors. I had the right job at the beginning where, you know, my boss and I had sort of started a new team, a new division. And I was able to have a lot of responsibility early on because there were only two of us. And if we were going to grow this business, he had to really trust me and give me probably more responsibility that then was smart to give <laughs> a 22-year-old straight out of college girl. But, you know, I was up for it. And I was willing to put in all the work that I needed to put in in order to get up the learning curve because it was a very steep learning curve. You are incredible. And amen to good mentors, too, because... Yeah, I mean, they're needed. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Another thing that I just wanted to talk briefly about, which I think is incredible that you've created or co-created is the Ascend Educational Fund that provides scholarships to immigrant students. I suppose a part of what led you to create this is your own journey. Was there anything else that led to this or how did the pieces fall together? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you said. It's my personal experience of like going to college when I was undocumented and still not been able to access any kind of financial aid because, and still today, by the way, undocumented students, even those with DACA, cannot access federal financial aid 
the majority of states don't provide any kind of state financial aid and don't even provide in-state tuition for state colleges and universities. And so the need is so big for undocumented students. And I wanted to start a scholarship even when I was in college. I was like, one day I'm going to start this scholarship. And many, many years later, a group of us came together, you know, a shout out to my co-founders because I couldn't have done it without them to start the scholarship fund. And we're celebrating 10 years this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we've awarded $600,000 in college scholarships to mostly undocumented students and all immigrant students. And, you know, I hope to be able to keep it going and to keep providing these opportunities for students who very much deserve it and who don't always get the opportunities that the rest of us do. And, you know, one thing that we made a very conscious decision of in our scholarship, and this really does relate to a lot of what I talk about in You Sound Like a White Girl in my, in my new book, is that this idea that, like, you have to be this perfect immigrant in order to be deserving, that you have mm. to be, like, top student, straight-A student, and be this, like, perfect little immigrant in order to be deserving of these opportunities. And in some ways, this sort of, like, I think my own story sometimes is used in that way. Like, look at her, you know, she mm -hmm. was a perfect student. She went to Wall Street. She writes books now. And that's why she's a servant. And I want to really dispel that notion because that idea to me is false. Like we deserve those opportunities because we do, because we're human, because, you know, we should have access to this opportunity. So in the scholarship, we have this category when we select students that's called distance traveled. And that distance travel is to capture where did the students start and where are they now? And so some of our students are not straight students. You know, some of our students have C's and are going to community college. Some of our students are straight students and going to community college because they understand it's sort of like a smart financial decision to do that sometimes. Some of our students are Harvard and Yale. And one of our students is the first DACA student to ever receive a Rhodes Scholarship and is studying at Oxford. You know, other of our students are still undocumented and therefore they've graduated and still aren't able to like put their degree to work in the way that they want to. And so we really want to help students who deserve it, but that deserve doesn't mean you've gotten straight A's and you're this perfect student. It means you're deserving because sometimes you've been through so much and you've worked so hard and we've seen the journey that you've traveled. And that makes you deserve it. I love that you're dispelling that myth because I think like you, I mean, we're here, we're making a contribution, any human beings, immigrants. And I love that you focus on immigrants because it's so needed, but we're all making a contribution and who's to say it's the perfect contribution. It's the big, it's a huge contribution. It's a contribution. And I don't think anybody should put it a name. Before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. Is it good or not good enough, you know? And yeah. I love that you're doing that. Thank you. I'm taking a quick second to interrupt your listening to remind you. This show relies on your support to continue to grow. If you get a ton of value, it would mean 
everything if you can hit the follow button on wherever you listen to, share with a friend, and give us a quick and honest review. Gracias y te mando muchos abrazos. Yeah, I mean, I think even, you know, we were just talking before we started recording about the book, right? And the book is sort of organized in the first half, it's about the lies. And the second part is about reclaiming. And so there's the lie of English and the lie of legality, the lie of whiteness and the lie of success. And in this chapter, the lie of success, I talk about that. I talk about dispelling those myths because I think we fall into this trap of saying, look how much we contribute to the economy, right? As Latinos, look mm -hmm. at the GDP. And I think those things are important, but we should stay away from the temptation of saying we deserve to be here because we contribute, because that's mm. not why we deserve to be here. We deserve so to be here because we do. We deserve to be here because we have roots in this country that go back centuries, that go back to before it was called the United States. And because migration has, in the history of the world, been something that humans do. We migrate. You know, right. That's how we ended up in America. So in the continent of America. So anyways. Yeah. Well, speaking of the book, let's dive more into your book. Again, it's called You Sound Like a White Girl, A Case for Rejecting Assimilation. Julissa, you've been such an accomplished author. I applaud you for that again, and a social justice activist. And in this book, you've alluded already, you weave your really your own experiences to support your message of how you don't think assimilation is a good thing. For you, what is the biggest takeaway that you want someone reading your book? That's a good question about what is like the key takeaway, you know, because I mean, you've been reading the book and there's a lot in there. I spend a long time doing a lot of research to be able to bring both a personal perspective, but also to back that personal perspective up with history and facts so that people can't just say like, well, this is just your personal experience. And it's like, no, actually, this is systemic issues. And let me show you historically how they've shown up and today how they're still showing up. If I had to pick one thing, I would want people to be liberated, as I was in writing this book, of the notion that you have to aspire to be someone different in order to belong in this country, that you have to get rid of your accent, that you have to sound like a white girl <laughs> in order to belong in this country, just to be liberated of this notion that we aren't enough, that we have to assimilate in order to be worth it, in order to be worthy. Because that's the biggest lie of them all. We Latinos, Latinas, our Latino community, we are succeeding because of our traditions, because of who we already are. In the book, I give examples of like Bad Bunny and Becky G and Patty Rodriguez, people who I respect and admire because they are succeeding because of the power of our community. They're mm -hmm. not trying to cross over into a white mainstream market in order to be successful. Like they already are successful. And I just want that for us. Like I want us to spend time creating spaces for ourselves instead of trying to assimilate to somebody else's. Beautiful. And in your book, I, I love that takeaway because I connected with some of it, because I am, I always say, yes, I'm Latina, but I'm a white Latina. So I've 
you know, I have come with privileges. You know, I born outside of the country. I was born in Colombia, but I was born an American citizen because my dad is white, a white American. And so, but there are still some things in terms of when you speak or when you wrote in the book about when you mentioned you sound like a white girl that I connected with because no soy ni de aquí ni de allá, right? That's always the battle with me. So there's mm. a lot of stuff that I connected, even though there was other stuff that I'm like, okay, well, I've had the privilege that I didn't have to or haven't had to deal with this. So I just appreciate that. And the other thing that I really enjoyed is I, as I mentioned to you before, we started recording, as I read this book, I stop and I search (laughs) more because I find it fascinating. And my husband and I, my husband is African-American. He's a history buff. And I went to him with this thing that this fact that I learned from your book about the second president of Mexico that Mm. was black. And I was like, it took just to the second president. I mean, se parecía blanquito. And I was like, did you know that? And he's like, no, I didn't. I felt like just like I was winning that day because he's such a history bud. Well, no es que se parecía blanquito. It's that all the portraits of him. Yeah that were painted made him look lighter. Mm. And so it's not just like, you know, many people, even Mexican people don't know that Vicente Guerrero was black and indigenous and that he was inspired by the Haitian revolution to end African slavery in Mexico. And the reason many people don't know this, I mean, there are schools all over Mexico that bear his name and that have portraits of him where he does look blanquito, where he doesn't necessarily look Afro-Mexican. And that was intentional. And that's the way in which history whitewashes events. And that's why it's up to us to really go dig for that real history, you know, for us to really look for more. And it's interesting, too, to me, like even in our Latino community, because I'm married to an African-American male. And and I remember my abuelita, because I was really close. She's passed since, but I was really close to her. And I was wanting to tell her about the man I fell in love with. And I'm like, he's black. Y ella me dijo, pero que tan negro, que tan oscuro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like even just in our perspective countries, how people of color were just, you know, it's just incredible. You know, in the book, like I think in the first chapter of the book, I address this head on that I Mm -hmm. learned the power of whiteness. I started learning that power of whiteness, that lie of whiteness when I was in Mexico, when I was a kid growing up in Mexico. And even in the subtle things of like, I was watching this video of someone and they're like washing their face and they're like using some product. And then they say, me veo mas blanquita by using this product as though viéndote mas blanquita significa que te ves mas bonita. And it's like all those things that are internalized racism that exists in our communities. And like in Latino communities, there is a lot of racist people and racist ideas that we have to understand how harmful they are. Mm -hmm. And all of this is like the remnants of colonization and the remnants of the caste system that literally people could have better lives the lighter skin they were and they could move up the socioeconomic rank the lighter skin they were. So we have to understand the roots of these ideas, where they come from, so we can truly unroot them and create like new ideas and new systems because it really is only harming us. The majority of us are not 
white and are not light skinned. So we're basically just like shitting on ourselves. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse in your podcast. You're fine. You're good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so we've got to stop it. Every time I hear something like that, I'm just like, we have so much work to do. Like, you know, my book comes out March 22nd. Like, here, let me give you a copy. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And I love how basically in the book you start, as you've already mentioned, about the lies, the lies of whiteness, the lies of English, and the lies of success. You've mentioned, because I know I could go on and on about asking about this book, but what would you say out of the three lies or something that you have not mentioned that you want people to really, really hone in on, whether it's in the lie of whiteness, because you've talked about that, you've talked about the lie of success. Have we talked about the lie of English besides just referencing it? But just it doesn't matter in which of those three lies that you want people to really pay attention to when reading the book. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I don't have one thing because they're all important. Absolutely. Which is why I gave them each their own chapter. I think the one that you didn't mention, there was the lie of legality. Okay. Which is a chapter that really talks about this lie that immigrants can come to the United States the right way. Because so many times I hear people say, oh, well, my grandparents came here legally or, you know, my great grandparents came here legally. And if we came here legally, then why can't you? And I go really deep into it in the book as to why that's a big lie. But suffice it to say, there isn't a quote unquote right way to come to the United States. Yeah, that makes sense. And then there is the last part of the book too, because I skip to the back because I always read the beginning, skip to the back and then make my way through. So there is a powerful passage at the end of the book that I'm not going to read because it's really, really powerful. And I'd rather you as a listener read this. And I'm telling you, when I say it's powerful, I literally sat, uh, put the book down for a moment, just kind of breathed in and breathe out and read it again. (laughs) And can you tell us just how the book ends? Yeah. The book, as I said, like it goes to sort of unveiling all of these lies. And then once we've gotten rid of those lies, now we can sort of start the reclaiming process, reclaiming our culture, our identity, our history. And really, you know, I think the book is an optimistic book, a book that really calls for change. And I believe that that change can happen. And I believe that we can actually make the words of the Constitution true. And I want the Constitution to live up to itself, if that makes sense, you know, because I think, listen, when the Constitution was written, it was written by white men for white men, it excluded enslaved Africans, it excluded indigenous people, it excluded women, it excluded so many people. So like the constitution is not this like holy text. It's not like, you know, if you believe in the Bible, like it's not like the Bible, you know, where it's like nothing was wrong. There was a lot of things that were wrong, but there was a lot of things that were beautiful and words that were beautiful, but they were just words. They're not living up to themselves. And I think that we have an opportunity to make sure that they do. Absolutely. Well, one last question, Julissa. This has been so amazing. You can tell, Julissa, that you've done a lot of homework and you've done a lot of research. Your book is really well written. And I'm sure that in the research and in 
writing the book, has there been, what kind of growth have you had? Because you defend your case really well, but I'm sure within that, of course, we are all learning all the time. You've learned something and maybe it shifted your perspective and you just grew from it. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, writing this book was such a big process. And, you know, originally I wanted to write a book of essays where it was going to be much more like personal stories. And then I realized that the type of book that I needed to write was much more of this sort of manifesto polemic book with some personal stories sort of driving the narrative. But really, it was going to be a book that was much more intellectual than that, than what I could personally do with personal essays. So that was a big shift just in terms of like what kind of book it was going to be. But I think that the one thing that I was just fascinated and heartbroken and inspired by all of the history that I learned about my people in this country, right? And the things that they've been through, but how they've shown up. You know, I tell this story in the book about these cheerleaders in Crystal City, Texas. And in Crystal City, Texas in the 1960s, in this high school, there could only be one Mexican American cheerleader, even though the school was 85% Mexican. And it was a completely racist quota. And these teenager girls, this 15, 16, 17-year-old teenage girls, with the help of, of activists, really rallied their entire community to overturn this racist rule, to make changes to their school board, to the city council. And it's like, wow, like this young girls harness their power and the power of our community to create change. And they were so young. And that story is so inspiring. And it's crazy to me that we don't know that story, right? And so I think a lot of times we think that Latinos, that we haven't been at the civil rights fight, that we still have taken like a backseat to it. And that's just not true. There were so many Latinos, you know, in the Southwest, it was specifically Mexican-Americans. In sort of the East Coast was a lot of Puerto Ricans that were, you know, like the young lords and that were fighting for their rights. And so I was just so inspired to know that, that, you know, I think a lot of times the thing that takes precedent is sort of this um, idea that our moms tell us, you know, calladita te ves más bonita, like don't mm. speak up, you know, that we're taught not to speak up. And that has become the prevalent narrative that Latinos, we don't speak up. That's not true because always we have spoken up. Always we have fought for our community. Always we have led these fights for justice for our community. And I want us to know more of those stories because I want us to know what an amazing, powerful lineage of warriors and fighters we come from. Yes, yes, absolutely true. And like I said, I've learned so much. And because I've learned so much, and I told you I would stop and Google some more because I was just naturally <laughs> curious, because of course, if you want to read more, you know, go to the back of the book yes. and the bibliography. And I hope everybody gets to read all of the books that I read in the research for the book. But if you don't have time to read all those like dozens of books, a good place to start is you sound like a white girl. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Julissa. This has been such an incredible conversation. I really want to thank you 
for your leadership, for using your voice for us, for educating us, for writing this incredible book. Like I said, I've thoroughly, thoroughly have enjoyed reading it. Your book is out now. So in the link in the show notes, please go grab it right now. You are not only going to be educating yourself and really be inspired, but you're supporting a a fellow Latina. So go get that book. And thank you so much, Julissa, for being here. Thank you so much. This is great. Wow. 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 Julissa is such a force to be reckoned with, right? I hope that you got a different perspective of assimilation, that you learn some history lessons. I know I am definitely feeling smarter and really connected with her story as a Latina, especially if you are Latina and got inspired. I encourage you not only to connect with her on IG, which is just Julissa Arce, and I'll have that in the show notes, but get a copy of her book, read her book, support this Latina author. Her book, again, is called You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation, and we will make it easy for you, and we'll have a link in the show notes. On another note, hopefully by now, you have seen or heard our announcement about this year's Financially Strong Latina. It was so much fun and so well-received last year, which is why I am thrilled that we are bringing it back again this year. You can check out the details over at financiallystronglatina.com. That is financiallystronglatina.com. And oh, we are able to provide it for free again this year thanks to the sponsorship of AARP. Next week, we get to meet Kathy Cano Murillo, who is also known as Crafty Chica. She shares her inspirational story of how she has been able to create a sustainable business in something she loves. And you know what it is? Crafting, as her name states. Bueno, pues, that is everything for today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune into the show. Be sure to check out the show notes over at jenhempel.com forward slash 301. That's jenhempel.com forward slash 301. Remember that being the reina of your money starts now simply by claiming it. I believe in you and so should you. Nos hablaremos el próximo jueves. Chao.